You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Technology is changing the very fabric of our society. I'm not just talking about the internet. I'm talking about artificial intelligence, robotics, the internet of things. Computers have never been faster or cheaper. Our leaders, they're on Twitter, they're on Instagram, they are broadcasting live. Technology is changing government, and it's bringing with it the promise of services that are better, faster, and more attuned to the needs of our unique communities. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And in the past 12 months, the global pandemic has really changed the way that organizations leverage digital technologies to solve their problems and to remain connected and collaborative. One of the things that I've enjoyed over the past year is all the incredible innovation that's happening within public sector to address the gaps that were discovered, some of which we've highlighted on this show. Since the public sector has traditionally been more hesitant to adopt new technologies, the overnight transition has been really impressive. And in this period of time, it's taught us that digital capabilities are no longer just a nice to have, they're an imperative. The realities of operating during the pandemic have forced governments worldwide to reimagine how they work and serve their constituents. Now that 2020 is in the rear view, it's likely that most citizens hope that the tech innovations that were spurred by the pandemic are going to stay and help our public sector institutions become more responsive and more resilient over the next years to come. One leader bearing this burden of continuing to evolve what the next normal is in the post-pandemic is Jamie Boyd, the chief digital officer for the government of British Columbia. She's responsible for accelerating digital change in Canada's westernmost province. Under Canada's federal structure, provinces and territories provide a lot of direct service delivery, including healthcare and education to the citizens. So her role has been critically important during the response to COVID and will continue to shape the lives of her citizens for years to come. Before moving to this role, Jamie was the director of open government for the federal government of Canada, working with the Treasury Board Secretariat to evolve their open data strategy, which is one of the best in the world. I think we'll see in our conversation how this background really shapes her views on the value that data and information can bring to government, especially during this period of time. Jamie, welcome to the show. Really appreciate you being here. We haven't spoken in a while. How are you doing? Fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm really excited to have you on the show today, Jamie. And for those listening, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to become a digital chief for the BC government? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, I'm, I'm joining you today from, from Vancouver Island, from the, the traditional territory of the Lekwungen-speaking people. Um, for those of you who are, are perhaps less familiar with Canada, uh, British Columbia is our westernmost province right on the, the coast. Uh, we're a province of about 5 million people. And under Canada's federal structure, uh, the government of, of BC, like all provincial governments, is responsible for a lot of direct service delivery to, to citizens, healthcare, education, that 
that sort of thing. Um, I've been with the province for about a year and a half. I'm the province's first chief digital officer. I came to this role from a a data background. Um, I started my career in the private sector, and then I spent about uh, eight years with the government of Canada. I came in as an economist, got frustrated with the availability of data, and uh, got into data warehousing, open data, uh, and served as the director of open government um, at the Federal Treasury Board Secretariat. Um, which was a lot of fun and I think equipped me really well for, for a role that really has to involve a lot of data management and a, a lot of pretty dramatic innovation. I'm glad you gave some background around uh, Canada geography. I think sometimes with my role at OpenText uh, being so global in nature, I take for granted that um, everybody understands the different provinces and, and cities within within Canada. So no, I'm, I'm glad you did that. And I, I mean, you and I met back when you were the director of open government for uh, Treasury Board Secretariat within Government of Canada. And and first of all, kudos to you guys. You, you had a, a great open government program, open data program. It's world renowned. It's one of the reasons why you were selected to uh, host the Open Government Partnership, which which we collaborated on. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your views around open government, why it's so important, and what type of innovation open data is really providing, not just to the public sector, but to the private sector? Absolutely. So open government is, uh, I guess, really a philosophy for, for public administration based on the idea that transparency, accountability, and cross-sector participation, citizen participation, are going to lead to better outcomes. And that's certainly something that I experienced in, in my role federally. Um, one of the, the things that I think we're experiencing in the fourth industrial revolution is that we do have to really embrace open innovation if we're going to, to make any kind of progress um, around meaningfully serving citizens in, in the internet age. Um, we need to be porous in the public sector to, to new innovations. And open government is really a discipline that allows that to happen systematically. Um, open data is incredibly valuable. Um, I think a lot of times we, we don't realize the extent to which open data informs so much of, of what we do, um, in, just in society in general. Um, you know, if you know what time your bus is coming to pick you up, if you know what the weather is going to be later in the day, that is almost always open data that comes from the public sector. So just basic sort of the the way our society runs is based on data often. Um, But it can be far more innovative things too, uh, building businesses on the basis of government data. So those are the sorts of things that that I was really excited to to be part of. When you look at innovation within government, I think sometimes, unfortunately, people will view kind of empirically that as an oxymoron because (laughs) government has lagged behind for so long to the private sector in a number of different areas. Um, are you finding it, especially over the past year, because you you took this role as chief digital officer uh, just a few months before the pandemic hit, so you kind of had your hands full, but are you finding that with this pandemic, the reception around driving innovation in government has become a lot, a lot better? Uh, I, I would say so. Um, I think it's useful to sort of refocus ourselves around um, the basics of what we're doing here. Governments exist to serve citizens. 
And we have a number of requirements in the way that we we provide those services. Um, we need to be good stewards of the public purse. We need to, to think about maximizing the return on our investments. We need to be fostering vibrant ecosystems and, and inclusive communities. And for me, technology really does help a lot of those things happen more, more efficiently. Um, I think in, in some cases, when we talk about innovation um, in the public sector, it's good and appropriate for governments to be a little bit more risk averse than, than the private sector. Um, we are administering tax dollars, public resources. So it makes sense that we, we don't want to you know, go all in with the house's money, if, if you will. Um, at the same time, there is this imperative that we need to be um, making good use of those resources. And a, a lot of times modern tools can help us do that more effectively. In my case, where I was sitting during when the, the pandemic hit, we certainly saw a lot of pretty exciting innovations um, and, and a cultural change, um, the, just the way you're describing. Um, we have 35,000 employees in the government of British Columbia, and our previous peak for VPN connections was a, a couple of thousand on a snow day. <laughs> right? And all of a sudden, we've got tens of thousands of people trying to connect and trying to be effective in their roles. Um, you know, that's, that's not a situation where you're looking at incremental innovation, that's a step change. Um, and so, you know, necessity is the is the mother of invention, they say, and that's certainly something that, that we saw during the pandemic. I think that's one of the most interesting things that I've seen over the past year is it's not even just the dramatic changes that have happened. It's really those foundational ones. Um, it's, it's the remote work access VPN. It's just having access to collaboration tools. Those are, are the foundational elements that are driving a lot of the the remote work abilities, which I think have been the biggest um, pivots for government all around the world. Absolutely. Um, within the government of BC, we we launched a suite of over thirty new services that we you know we hadn't even necessarily contemplated prior to the the pandemic. Uh, one of my favorite examples is a, a chatbot. People across British Columbia were desperate for information about what was happening with with the pandemic. Um, you know, call centers were were being overwhelmed. Uh, so we looked at whether or not we could stand up a chatbot in collaboration with the the BC Center for for Disease Control, and that was so popular that we ended up scaling it out across uh, the the main government of British Columbia website. And at its peak, that was 40, fourteen thousand sessions per day that we were managing through that. Chat chatbot. Um, that's 14,000 um, sessions that would have been phone calls otherwise. That's government being more available to, to the people we're trying to serve. Um, so at least here in BC, we were we were very innovative in terms of getting content out where where the people of BC wanted to, to access it, be it on a chatbot, on Instagram, you know, trying to, to make things really accessible. So those kinds of innovations were, were really helpful for us at the beginning of, of the pandemic. And then really taking a demand-based uh, approach to, to standing up new services. Um, right away, there were, there were tons of British Columbians trying to come home, people who are traveling. We needed to stand up an, an application that was going to allow them to submit their, their self-isolation plan so that they could return home safely. And that's that kind of an application, an intake form like that, would in normal government development cycles take months to stand up. We did it in a couple of weeks and we learned and we got better. And so next when we were trying to get different industries back back to work, we were able to, to use that code and fork it and just use it again and again. We used it for our silviculture industry, used it for a number of different industries. So that discipline of, of you know, building in an agile way of reusing, 
really being an open source government is something that really bore a lot of a lot of fruit. When I think just the fact that you're using terms like chatbots and talking about social media platforms to communicate with your constituency shows that you're thinking a little bit differently than perhaps what legacy government leaders have done. It's one of the conversations we've had on this show uh, and I've had with with various coworkers and customers is around what the next generation is really driving. And I think mm-hmm. um, when leaders are really put into positions within government to affect change and they're bringing uh, these, these new diverse thoughts around communication channels, innovative technologies, different ways of, of advancing the mission, I think all of that is uh, going full force into driving change within government. Um, and one of the conversations I do want to have with you uh, is around some of these digital principles that have been established within government of British Columbia. But before I do that, um, I just had uh, Sandy Carter on the show who heads up public sector uh, partners and programs at Amazon Web Services. And one of the conversations we had was around women in tech. And I know it's a big uh, passion of hers. I also know it's one of yours. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get your your thoughts around what you're seeing uh, in terms of women advancing in the technology world and some of the advice you might have for, for our women listeners looking to advance. I love that question. Thank you. Thank you for putting it on the table. I, I think it's just so critical for us to, to be talking about these issues. I've often been the only woman in the room, and I'm thrilled to tell you that that is rarely the case today. Um, you know, coming into government as an economist, it, it's not unusual to, you know, some of the, the more quantitative areas. Um, here in the government of BC, we've got about 1600 people that are fully uh, dedicated to, to information management or, or technology. Um, we're 39% women. So that's pretty good relative to most other governments. Um, you know, and we, we do invest very heavily in, in trying to make sure that our teams look like the communities that we serve. Um, in BC, we've, we've embedded those commitments in our diversity and inclusion action plan. And it's really, you know, it's critical that we take that inclusion, inclusive lens. Um, my previous role federally working on open data, we, we managed to make a lot of progress um, embedding gender-based analysis plus in our open government uh, initiatives. And in collaboration with a couple of different groups, um, development groups and whatnot, we were able to make some good progress on a, on a feminist open data initiative. I'm part of a, a network of uh, that's really run off of a Slack channel. It's called the, the Open Heroines. And it's just, you know, the scrappy group of mostly women um, who are looking to, to bring that inclusion. Um, because it's, it's one thing to talk about bringing women to the table. It's another thing to, to really fundamentally reshape the way that we do public sector um, innovation to, to bring that feminist lens into, into action. So, you know, I, I, it's critical. I think we're getting better. But my advice would really be for any women who are, who are trying to get into technology is to, to really, you know, nobody's going to invite you to the table. And so bring, pull up a chair, you know, come right in. Um, you know, we are all innovating and learning about this stuff along the way. Um, I think it's important to find yourself a mentor. It's important to, to have confidence in, in the value of diversity around the table um, and really to, to, to be proud of the different perspectives that, that I think women often bring in the technology space. Yeah, I think, first of all, I love the concept around your, your workforce should really, especially at the government level, represent 
the citizens that you are working for um, and have that have that be uh, not even just from an equal percentage, but you just want to be able to interact and, and have it look and feel like the same people you're working for. So I think that's critically important. But the other thing is, especially at the government level, I feel like when you have the conversation around diversity and inclusion, it becomes a compliance conversation versus a diversity of thought. You look at places like Silicon Valley, or even if, if we're talking in, in Canada terms, um, Toronto, which is quickly becoming a, a technology hub. And when you look at diversity and inclusion, it's really looking at that from an innovation perspective, diversity of thought. Everybody mm-hmm. brings different backgrounds and different strengths. Um, and I think that's the conversation that really needs to be had in government. And I think over the past couple of years, you've seen that. And that's just been another really large driver um, pushing the government forward. Totally. I couldn't agree more. And and that that idea of having multidisciplinary teams, I think we've really demonstrated that that in an, an agile sort of workflow, that diversity of perspective in terms of skill set is going to be really, really important. I would argue that a di- diversity of lived experience is often going to be just as valuable as we design and deliver different kinds of services. I, I think that's a perfect transition because we want to look at some of these principles that have been developed. Um, and really, it's designed to put the citizen at the center of it. So like you said, those lived experiences to really bring that value to the citizen that are are living these experiences today. Um, a, a good friend of both of ours, Lawrence Atta, who's the chief technology officer for the city of Toronto, we, we had this conversation around centralizing on principles and centralizing on value. And I think that allows for the decentralization of procurement. Um, so I think, is that kind of what you're going after with these, with these principles to, to have this galvanizing construct for the entire government that they, they can go off and now accomplish their mission, knowing that it's all rooted um, at these core foundational elements? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the governments are these huge, like complicated beasts. Um, you know, the, the sort of Kafkaesque version of, of government often plays out in reality. Um, and we have such a diversity of, of responsibilities and accountabilities and so many different perspectives. You know, these are large organizations. So coming into to my role, I thought it was really important for us to work together to to. to to define a bit of a vision of what what good looks like. What do good digital services look for look like for BC? Um, so we we tried to leverage uh, digital principles that existed elsewhere. So you know, in the government of Canada and other governments, and we went through them and we said, okay, anything that we that we love, we're going to keep. And if it's missing anything based on the reality of British Columbia, we're, we're going to define that together as a community. And so there are a few things in BC's digital principles that I think are, are really inspiring and that I haven't seen in others. Um, we have a really strong emphasis on, on ethics. Um, so we, we talk about integrating data ethics and, and AI ethics right from the get-go and being transparent about our use of, of those kinds of new tools. Um, we also have a principle that I haven't seen elsewhere around expressing cultural and historic awareness and respect. 
Um, British Columbia is the first jurisdiction in the world to take the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People and put it into our own legislation. Um, and so we, we feel very strongly about trying to advance reconciliation. So that's something that, that we absolutely had to put in our digital principles, right? If we're, if we're developing digital services, they have to be for all British Columbians with our various lived experiences. So we wanted to put that right there in the center. Um, we wanted to, to be deliberate about saying, yep, we're going to manage risks proportionately. We we have, um, you know, we have fairly robust privacy protections in, in this province. And with all the innovation that we're seeing in, in the tech sector, I think it's it's showing that that it's important to have those good protections in place. Um, and so that kind of thing we wanted to really enforce so that as digital teams were, were being empowered and, and really working to deliver cool new new services, that they had a good sort of North Star and a good sense of, of what uh, a great digital service looks like. So that was a bit of the, the rationale. We developed it with teams, um, the, the principles with teams from across government. And then we did a couple uh, public engagement sessions. We put them up on GitHub while they were still draft. We got you know, hundreds of comments on them. So it was also kind of cool to, to have it be a really community-driven process for building these things out. That's excellent. Uh, so, so one of the ones I, I want to start with is around cultivating trust. You talked mm-hmm. about the value of data and, and being good stewards of data and, and understanding data privacy implications. I think trust and government are not something that are really synonymous uh, <laughs> in, the, in the past few years. And and I know we we had that conversation a couple of years back when when we were working around uh, the Open Government Partnership uh, Summit. Uh, is how does o- this open data really work to elicit trust um, on on behalf of the constituency for the government? Um, what are some of the ways that that you're putting the, this principle into uh, into action uh, on behalf of your citizens to try to gain their trust in all the different services you're providing? Yeah, great question. And I think there's a lot of different ways of answering that question. Uh, For me, I'd start with the idea that, you know, a lot of times people don't really care uh, which government entity is providing a service. They just want that service quickly. You know, they ideally want it to be kind of forgettable. You know, nobody really enjoys their experience of filling out forms or anything like that. Um, And so we really wanted to, to try to push on excellent streamlined, fast, easy digital services. And we figure that over time, when government is reliably doing that, if we do a good job, then we then we hope that we, we earn the trust of our citizens. Um, when we talk about what is digital government, for me, it's really using modern tools from the internet age, um, imposing on ourselves the discipline of building out governance and whatnot to make the use of those tools sustainable. Um, shipping early and often, having those iterative processes where we're improving over time, learning as an organization, and doing that so well that we are truly meeting the expectations of our of our citizens in the digital age. So if that's what we understand as digital government, then trust is something that that should come as part and parcel of that. More tactically, data is a big 
piece of, of earning that trust. Um, you know, we've we've long had commitments in Westminster democracies around being transparent, you know, starting with just the availability of what's being said in our legislative assemblies. But through many of our, our governments, we have our financial administration acts that require us to publicly disclose how we spend our money. It's good and appropriate for that to be scrutinized. So just the the, the administrative data, the data that we house as, you know, for, for research or, or policy design purposes, that should be available to to more uh, communities. Here in the government of British Columbia, we've made a lot of progress through our, our data innovation program, which essentially allows researchers to provide to, to, to access data that would not otherwise be a candidate for public release. Um, the mosaic or aggregation effect is, is, you know, comes with risks that are a little bit too high. Um, and so Allowing uh, really, you know, bright accredited researchers to access anonymized data in a secure environment is something that we think um, shows the, the the value of this kind of, you know, or earning the trust that that we need. Um, and then finally, there there are different kinds of innovations that I, I also think inspire a lot of trust. Um, BC is the the first jurisdiction in North America to have a single piece of of identity. So we took our driver's license and our health ID and turned it into the BC Services Card. Um, and we we now have a, a little app that you can that you can download, and it allows you to to access all sorts of different government services. And it's kind of neat. I, I grew up here in British Columbia, and then I was gone for I guess, 17 years, came back here for in this this capacity, and I downloaded the app. I got my services card, and uh, and it's really neat. You, you kind of FaceTime with a with a government official, and they they validate your identity, and then it gives you access to all sorts of uh, of data. And uh, one of the the data sets there, the the kinds of data that's in there is available through our health gateway. And I was able to find immunization records from when I was a kid. Um, And so that sort of thing, I think, inspires trust saying, okay, well, you know, government may have a lot of complicated issues that they're managing, but but here's all the things that they have on me regarding my my health. Um, And I think that 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 sort of an intervention can really inspire a lot of confidence. So that's a great segue into another principle I want to touch on is take an ecosystem approach. You just gave an example of this health card and and your ID being aggregated together into one single identity, um, but it comes with it empirical history around you. And to me, that's that just speaks to the ecosystem that we live in today. There's so many disparate databases of information, whether it's legacy or, or it happening collected in, in real time. Um, that government needs to be able to integrate into. One of the conversations we have around what the future of work looks like in any industry, government or financial sector, life sciences, what have you, is the need for interoperability because Mm. you don't know what the next platform or the next um, repository is going to be that you're going to be working in. All you know is that it's coming. Um, (laughs) So how are you as the chief digital officer planning for that? And I I use the kind of the phrase future proofing. How are you looking to future proof your enterprise moving forward? Great question. I think that uh, one of the things that I would just really emphasize within the question is the importance of the ecosystem approach. One, because we get better results. And two, because it's way easier to, to recruit and retra- retain top talent. Um, people who are working in this space like to be part of an, e- an active ecosystem. Um, it's, it's really exciting for me to, to see this 
at play on a daily basis. Uh, the government of BC is, is very invested in, in open source. If you go on to, to GitHub, you'll see I just went on there to check. We have 932 repos, uh, which is pretty exceptional for, for a public sector entity. So really pushing on open source, uh, I think, is incredible for, for enhancing scope for collaboration across sectors. Um, and, you know, just an example, I, I've, we've got a little digital support team. Um, that uh, I've got here within within my group, within our digital delivery unit. And that little team is tasked with reviewing uh, investment proposals from across government before we, we put them forward for, for approval and to, to try to get a good understanding of what the proposal is, make sure that there are good results indicators, that the enterprise architecture approach makes sense, all that sort of thing, and just really try to improve the project before it goes forward. Um, and so we've got a, an annex that we, we use to validate all of these investment proposals. So I threw it up on, uh, we put it up on GitHub and then I just disseminated it through social media a couple days ago. And it's great. We've got dozens of people commenting on the thing, trying to improve it. You know, somebody corrected a couple typos. We've got way more substantive comments in there too. Um, and it really shows the power of, of the ecosystem. A few months ago, I did the same thing for, for our approach to APIs. Um, we've got about 30 APIs right now in our, in our data catalog. We're really looking to to advance that. And so we wanted to have a standardized approach to APIs. You know, threw it up on, on social media, linked to the GitHub and uh, to the to the repo. And you know, somebody wrote a white paper in response saying, Hey, you know, we, we like your approach, but you know, you could you should take into account all this other stuff. So can I you think- share their contact information after this so we can reach out to that person. <laughs> Help us out. <laughs> yep, you can go find it yourself. You know, that's the beauty of all this stuff, right? Um, and so having this active ecosystem, you know, I think people are genuinely interested in, in what their government is up to. Um, and that's so powerful. Um, as a public sector entity, there are a whole bunch of things that we can and should be doing to, to encourage that. Um, so open source is a big one, open APIs, but then also really thinking about what we are doing in terms of procurement. Um, you know, here in the government of BC, we've pushed on our digital marketplace. We've got two uh, neat procurement programs, Sprint With Us and Code With Us. Code With Us is for um, essentially to, to get developers to contribute lines of code, so small little procurements. And Sprint With Us is to help uh, procure agile teams to deliver on some of the thorniest problems that we're, we're addressing as a, as a government. Carbon pricing, all sorts of challenging, challenging things. Um, and it's been a really successful program. Uh, pretty new. We put about $16 million worth of projects out on the, the street. And taking that integrated approach to procuring agile teams and then embedding them together with public servants has been incredibly effective. And I think that's been one of the big lessons from, from COVID. The teams that were most able to pivot and respond effectively to the imperative of this pandemic were those that already had that sort of muscle memory and that ability to to leverage the network. Yeah, I think that's why you saw technology comes to be able to pivot so fast because they were so used to this. It's not mm-hmm. that they were used to a pandemic per se, but they were so used to the next thing that was going mm-hmm. to come and hit them. Um, so pivoting was like, I, I like how you phrased it. It was kind of a muscle memory um, and they were able to pivot and move forward. And it wasn't a muscle that government had really flexed. Um, and it, if they had, it, it hadn't been flexed very long. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But but in that same regard, I'd, I'd love to expound in a certain area here. We saw a massive acceleration around the procurement of digital technologies um, and just innovative things happening at government. But a lot of that spawned from necessity. But what are your thoughts around the ability for maybe policy and legislation to be able to keep up with the increased demand around this innovation? I think I'm really curious to see as we look across the next five years, what the expectations of the constituency will look like. Because I, I, I would argue that once you kind of open the bottle and you show what the capabilities are, that then becomes the expectation. So you mm. can't then put those those innovative uh, qualities of government back in the bottle and slow it down to a level that was pre-COVID and say, okay, we're back to normal now. I think we, we see what's possible and we want more of what's possible. But do you think legislation and policy will be able to keep up with that, Jamie? Such a great question. Yes. Yes, I, I absolutely think that it will because it must. One thing that COVID has shown us is that better and faster is possible. And I don't think that we could possibly go back to the world we were in before. Um, the, the world of multiple years of requirements gathering and all that, that's just not something that that's tenable in the longer term. Um, full disclosure, I'm a deeply optimistic person, so take it with a grain of salt. But no, I, I do believe that we must mainstream digital innovation across the public sector. Um, and I think that we know how to do that. Um, but then there's, there's a, a sort of a twin challenge, which is that we, you know, to mainstream this kind of activity requires a lot of courage and a lot of discipline. You know, the courage to ship code early and often, the courage to iterate and to take on those human-centered design processes and to admit that, that sometimes we fail. And that's a very difficult thing for, for a public sector organization to do, um, you know, and, and go out and, and test with real people and watch them click through a website and watch them abandon the task that they that Why they do have. you think that is, Amy? Why do you think it is so hard? I mean, you look at Silicon Valley and they have this fail first mentality or fail fast mentality so they can fail, learn, reiterate and move forward. Why do you think it is so hard for government to fail? I think it's two things. One is it's the culture. Um, you know, we, we are raised, many of us are, are long-term public servants and we're, we're raised through certain processes. We're, we're taught to mitigate risks up front. Um, and sometimes we, we take on strategies that don't really mitigate risks. <laughs> um, you know, I, I remember when I was a, a new public servant in, in the government of Canada, um, really being asked to focus on on firm fixed price contracts for technology. And, you know, the, the idea was essentially that we were going to outsource the risk of failure. Like, hey, you know, contractor or vendor, that's the price. You make it work. Um, and I think that major technology failures around the world have shown us that that's simply not viable. Uh, in Canada, the, the Phoenix Pay System, in the US, healthcare.gov. In BC, we've got our own homegrown failures. You look at the data from the Standish Group, the large public sector technology procurement systematically failed to achieve their, their, the, what they're setting out to do at the beginning. And so what that means to me is if the large technology procurements are going to fail, 
don't do large technology procurements, <laughs> right? And do the smaller ones. Take that ecosystem approach. Don't lock yourself into a single vendor. Um, you know, commit to, to to running competitive procurements. And instead of doing these massive multi-million dollar change requests, go back to the market. Um, and I think that that really does favor a diversity of, of potential vendors contributing to a, to a project. Um, and so I think that sometimes we we are we are mistaken. We sort of lose the forest for the trees. You say, well, in this specific project, um, taking a, an approach where we're trying to transfer the risk to the vendor is going to be more effective. And we've seen time and time again that the, the government simply cannot outsource its risk um, in that in that way. So there's partly the the cultural piece, and then there's partly that you know we we are protectors of the public purse. It's appropriate for us to be more risk averse than the private sector. So I would say it's a combination of things. I mean, again, I think sometimes we go too far, <laughs> um, <laughs> but that that combination of of issues is part of the problem definition. I think. Well, we could probably have a whole discussion around whether it's even riskier to be as risk averse as <laughs> government is. Um, but it, but it does speak to another principle that you have, which is around building diverse teams and and internal capacity mm -hmm. and. With that diversity, you're just organically going to inherit people who are a little bit less risk averse than perhaps your uh, career um, government employee. Mm -hmm. I think, especially recently, we've seen in all countries, private sector executives, middle managers um, coming into government at certain levels and being able to interject some of that uh, private sector culture, we'll call it. Um, into government to drive that innovation and to and to be leaders and stewards throughout some of these projects, um, and I think that certainly helped. Um, another another supporting element of that, though, is then when they leave and go back to the private sector, they're bringing with them the ability to understand government at a better level, to help speak their language, to help drive innovation from the outside. Because mm -hmm. sometimes just pushing and pushing and pushing isn't going to get the rock up the hill. Sometimes you need to do it in the way that that is going to get the most or the, the most uh, value for your effort. And that's understanding how to work with government and they, and they can do that. Um, but as you build these diverse teams, I think it breeds innovation. So what are you doing? I know we spoke a little bit earlier in the show around this, uh, but, but what are some of the things you're doing to build these diverse teams within your organization? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the question is great, because we really did see that over the course of COVID, those nimble networks, those partnerships, they're like rocket fuel for delivering great digital services. We're doing a few different things. Um, we just started a new digital academy uh, with the hope that we'll continue to, to upskill folks that are already within the, the public sector ecosystem. We're also doing a lot of, around trying to, to leverage the new remote work reality to, to bring more people into the public sector from across the province. Um, you used to have to be right in Victoria for many of these roles. Now we're, we're much more flexible. Um, and then we're trying to sandbox some, some pretty radical innovation. So. Uh, place that that I love that uh, that's very special is is the BC Developers Exchange. Um, and it, it really is a, an experiment in sandboxing that kind of innovation. Uh, it, essentially, the the exchange lab is a place where ministries can come with their wicked problems. They have to have a clearly defined business problem, executive buy in to try to solve the problem, and some money. 
And we use that money to run a a sprint with us, one of those procurements to try to get in an agile team. And so once there's that clear problem definition, we build the team. So a small cross-functional team, one of those two pizza teams, um, and we look to empower them, dramatic empowerment. Um, Then the teams will refine what they're solving for together with their users. They design not just for communities, but with communities. And that's so critical. And then on the basis of that, start showing value as early as possible, just shipping, 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 um, and delivering incremental value and iterating on the basis of feedback from, from internal and external stakeholders. And then on the basis of that, really just trying to, to demonstrate the results. So sharing the story in the open, telling the, the good, the bad, the ugly, doing open retros, that sort of thing. Um, and so that's kind of a, a development cycle that, that we piloted in the lab and we're scaling out across government. So as an example, um, we, we have our Digital Investment Board, which is a deputy minister level committee that uh, oversees uh, capital spending for, for IMNIT projects and pro- programs. And we require all of the projects that are coming through there to have citizen-centric results metrics, which is just, it doesn't sound that dramatic probably to an external listener, um, but really saying, okay, why, why does this matter for a British Columbian? That's kind of a different kind of approach to, to a lot of these digital services um, that often are, are trying to deal with a pretty complicated legacy environment and, you know, trying to get themselves off the mainframe in certain cases. And here we are saying, OK, but you really need to focus on that community that you're trying to serve. And how is that going to make a difference to to the person who's sitting up in Atlin in Northern BC or wherever they may be. Uh, and so that kind of, that discipline of making sure that we're targeting meaningful results and that we're building responsible governance is uh, I think a really important piece of the puzzle when it comes to building those, those nimble networks. That's actually one of the last uh, principles I did want to touch with you on is designing around people um, and the whole conversation around citizen experience. And right now, really, that conversation is almost wholly centered on digital experience. Mm-hmm. What, what did you have to do um, with the onset of COVID to really support that digital engagement of, of your constituency? Because I know there were a lot of governments out there that didn't have the infrastructure in place to facilitate some of the services digitally uh, to translate them from in-person to digital were you guys able to do that? And if not, how were you able to pivot and, and deliver those services? One of the big advantages that we have in BC is that we've been doing cool things like this for a while. Uh, so we have a really robust human-centered design practice through our government digital experience. Uh, so some of the, the people who were here far, way, well before me, David Hume, Peter Watkins, those kinds of folks, uh, have been building up a lot of that muscle memory that I, I referenced earlier. And so that that was very helpful for being agile in our, our, our response during COVID. Um, the kinds of projects that have been put through that are, are very, you know, sometimes very citizen Centric. So an example, one is BC's Affordable Child Care Benefit uh, over at our Ministry of Child and uh, Family Development, MCFD. So that one is one that went through a totally human-centered design process designed around the user start to finish. But similarly, um, we, we changed our legislation last year to enable uh, access to cloud-based tools. And so same kind of deal. We went and did a human-centered
center design process to get a better understanding of what the opportunity was for us to to leverage cloud services. Uh, and so having it not just on our, our citizen centric sort of the more citizen touching services, but some of our back office functions has been really helpful also. Um, And it's meant that we've been able to prioritize different kinds of interventions that really do uh, work for, for people. Another great example is over at our at our Ministry for Social Development and Poverty Relief. Uh, they were doing a lot of um, manual data integration, um, legacy systems and that sort of thing. Um, and time that public servants in that ministry were spending just copying and pasting data, that's time that they aren't spending serving vulnerable community members. Uh, so that ministry was able to take on a, a pretty neat little innovation project, uh, applying robotic process automation. And so on that basis, they were able to fry, free up s- staff time to design better services. Um, so it's kind of a long-winded way of saying that human-centered design practices are just so critical for making sure that the product, the service, the program is going to be meaningful. It also means that we have to be really rigorous about making sure that that we are using accessibility standards, that we're building with with equity first and foremost in our minds. Um, we're we're a socially progressive government, and we we need to design for all British Columbians, um, and that matters more than ever in in a jurisdiction that has, you know, some connectivity challenges. We're we're a very big province, um, and so all the more reason for us to to think about how all British Columbians are going to be interacting with government services. I love your view on citizen experience because it's it's exactly how I feel when it comes to driving value from the back all the way to the front. And it's mm-hmm. I think when people have conversations around citizen experience. Sometimes I think they confuse CX with UX, and it's not just a web page or, or a cool mobile application. But a lot of the value is really brought from the back office employees. And like you said, it's shifting from that low value to high value offering that they can then deliver on behalf of the, the constituent. What I love is how you're looking at it and freeing up time, not just to do other services, but to actually take some of these services back to formula and reshape them to be more efficient and just be uh, structured better on behalf of the the citizen. I think that's amazing. Absolutely. I I think as technologists, it's important for us to be optimistic. Um, It's important for us to understand that in, in the internet age, we have an opportunity to shape um, the way our society interacts, the relationship between the people and the state. Um, we, we have incredible tools. We've never had such good tools. Compute has never been faster or cheaper. And on that basis, it's incumbent upon us as governments, as, as entities that are funded by the tax dollar, to, to really take advantage of the new tools and to, to apply them responsibly, to have that discipline and make sure that we aren't creating new inequities or, or whatever those pitfalls may be. Um, but we do have systemic barriers preventing us from, from delivering as much value as we can. And so we must tackle those barriers. Um, and, and I think we should do it with an ecosystem approach with the citizen at the center. Jamie, thanks so much for your time. Um, I, I love that we've been able to walk through some of these principles that you guys have centralized on. Do you have any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with today? Oh, we're always looking for talent. British Columbia is a beautiful place. Last weekend I went skiing. This weekend I'm going surfing. Everybody else <laughs> is 
freezing. So, you know, when you're when if you're a talented developer, think of British Columbia. Um, we've got really a fantastic opportunity here to continue delivering tremendous value for the people of BC. It's a beautiful place. Um, and, and I'm just so excited to, to get to work with incredibly talented partners across across government um, and really uh, a, a beautiful ecosystem that's, that's developing in the technology space. Uh, so really, it's to, to leave with a note of excitement. Fantastic. And I think we wrote a tagline for you. I, I heard you say the whole goal is for services to be forgettable. So I think that's that that could be your new tagline. The government <laughs> of British Columbia. Service is so good you'll forget about us. I'm gonna get in trouble over that one, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love it because it's absolutely right. Nobody goes nobody goes home laying in bed thinking, I loved filling out that piece of paper today to get my driver's license. <laughs> yeah, we want it to be simple, fast, easy. And yeah, really try to have people do things on the internet and hope that they have a good time. (laughs) Jamie, thanks again for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ShittestRayB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.